people are constantly saying like, don't let your disability define you. So I think define is an interesting word. It doesn't define me. I honestly think that being Palestinian defines me more than having cerebral palsy. However, cerebral palsy is like my constant companion. It's like my shadow. I can't get rid of it. Literally not a single day in my life goes by where I can just not think about it. It's constantly involved in everything I do. And I think it's so interesting that that one moment changed my entire future. I live in chronic pain because a guy had to do jello shots. Imagine being born with cerebral palsy to Palestinian immigrant parents, growing up the only disabled Muslim in a Christian New Jersey town. However, when you're blessed with your father's comic genes, your mother's driving ambition, hard work ethic, and have a large family support network, anything is possible. This week's guest, Maysoon Zayed, is an inspiring example of what is possible when self-limiting beliefs are cast aside. Maysoon has blazed a trail through life as a writer, actor, stand-up comedian, educator and activist. And in 2014, her TED Talk, I Have 99 Problems, Palsy is Just One of Them, went viral. In this broad-ranging interview, we cover Maysoon's early life experiences, setting her sights at age five on being an actor in US soap opera General Hospital, the defining moment of her childhood, age 12, that ultimately led her to dancing on Broadway, en route to becoming a stand-up comedian. In this lively interview, Mason provides an enlightening perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and discusses being a female Muslim comedian post 9-11 and what changed under the Trump administration and how things have changed again in recent months. And of course, we also discuss comedy, her inspirations and her successful annual Arab-American Comedy Festival. I think you'll find this wide-ranging conversation inspiring, uplifting and educational. I have to give a shout out to Sarah Abdallah, a recent guest who recommended Maysoon. Now, on with the show. So, Maysoon, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I have no idea what this is, so I'm super excited. Excellent. Best place to be. I have to give a big <laughs> shout out to Sarah because she recommended that we interview you next. So I am very honored for you to find the time to do this interview because I know you don't do podcasts and it's um, just going to be an extraordinary experience. So thank you very much. So let's start with this. Okay. I mean, I've watched some of your your videos and I have to say I was showing we sat down last night and watched YouTube with my partner, Elaine. And she was in hysterics at certain points with some of them. So I think it's fair to say you're a comedian, you're an act, an actor, a writer with an extraordinary life story. But before we really get into that, can we talk about your childhood and your upbringing and your education? From what I understand, you were born in the US to Palestinian immigrant parents um, with two siblings and grew up in a place called Cliff, uh, Cliffside Park, New Jersey. Am I correct? You killed one of my siblings. I have three older sisters. Oh, I'm the youngest damn. Of, the wow. youngest of four girls. Okay. The youngest of four girls. Yeah. All right. Okay, then. Yeah. So I heard you say at age five that you decided you wanted to be on a TV show called General Hospital. Again, something I'm not being American. It's completely I knew nothing true. Of... Where? And the reason that we had to do this interview at 4 p.m. Eastern instead of 3 p.m. Eastern is because I watch General Hospital every day live from 3 p.m. Eastern to 4 p.m. Eastern. So can you explain where that came from? It's a very random thing, a five-year-old to decide. I, yeah. So I'm super duper old. You have to put up like a picture by your podcast because I don't look old. I'm cinnamon and our skin don't crack, but I'm super duper old. And when I was growing up in the USA, we actually only had five networks. Mm -hmm. We had CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, and PBS. And ABC had a soap opera called General Hospital. And General Hospital came on every single day at 3 p.m. And 3 p.m. is when we would get home from school. Uh. So we would get home from school. Me and my sisters would watch General Hospital. We'd have like our little snack. And then at four o'clock, we'd start doing homework. As I was watching General Hospital, a character named Robin played by Kimberly McCullough was introduced. And when Robin joined the show, she was six years old. So she was the same age that I was. I saw her and I was like, oh, of course I'm going to become a soap star. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I mean, I used to come home from school and watch something in the UK called Blue Peter. I have to say, I never even thought about being a presenter on it. But but that. So I think there's I think there's another reason that I kind of left out, which is when I was born, uh, the doctor who delivered me was drunk. I lost a couple of minutes of oxygen. As, as a result, I have a neurological disorder called cerebral palsy. It's literally brain damage. And it affects people differently. Like some of us are nonverbal. Some of us are wheelchair users. I shake all the time. Now, my parents were immigrants that had come from Palestine like seven years before I was born. They didn't have enough money for physical therapy or occupational therapy. So instead, they sent me a dance class and piano class. And so I think that is what planted the seed that I wanted to be a performer. Why I chose General Hospital on TV is because I saw Robin. She was my age. She looked like me. She had dark hair. She wasn't blonde. A lot of the kids were blonde. And I was like, oh, that's what I want to be. And I didn't notice that nobody on American TV had a visible disability like me. (laughs) That never occurred to me. Then and not really that much now. No, not really that much now. So disabled people are 20% of the population. And the last study that they did said we were only 2% of the images on television in America. And of those 2%, 95% are played by non-disabled actors. So like in the very slim chance that we appear anywhere, we're not even playing ourselves. So did, did you say that you're... The, the doctor was drunk? Yeah, the doctor was drunk. And I know because I won a bunch of money because the nurses testified against him. I was born on Labor Day weekend in New Jersey. The dude was wasted. He had delivered my other three sisters. They had just slid out. So he figured he could like deliver and get back to the party. I came out fist first, ready to fight the world. He panicked. He cut my mom six times. I lost three minutes of oxygen and I won a bunch of money. It wasn't a good trade-off. This show is driven by serendipity and we like to explore serendipity in our guests' lives. But that is the ultimate in serendipity. I mean, you could never have imagined that at the start of life. But it, it sounds like it's defined who you are and the journey you've been on. Yeah, it's so interesting. People are constantly saying, like, don't let your disability define you. So I think define is an interesting word. It doesn't define me. I honestly think that being Palestinian defines me more than having cerebral palsy. However, cerebral palsy is like my constant companion. It's like my shadow. I can't get rid of it. Literally not a single day in my life goes by where I can just not think about it. It's constantly involved in everything I do. And I think it's so interesting that that one moment changed my entire future. I live in chronic pain because a guy had to do jello shots. <laughs> well, but like then you have to play the whole game of are you who you are if you aren't born the way you are, right? So if I wasn't disabled, I kind of I'm pretty sure I'd be like a federal prosecutor or DA or or something like that. Like my older sister is the ambassador representing Palestine at the United Nations. The other one is like a pharmacist that's like the head pharmacist at some like big hospital, you know. So I think I would have had a more conventional career. If I wasn't palsy, I don't think I would have been an artist. So here's a question then. Do you think it's it defined not who you are, but did it impact your character and your humor? And do you think you would have ended no. up being... No. no. My humor is a carbon copy of my dad. It's not... It's, okay. it's not... I, I hear this from disabled people all the time. So I know where you're coming from. The idea that it's like a defense mechanism and that's why they were funny. I wasn't funny as a kid. I was a drama queen. I wanted to be on a daytime soap opera. I wasn't trying to be funny. I was trying to like, I had traditional weeping spaces that I would sit in and cry to see if I was convincing. And I was like, I was very dramatic. So my comedy comes from my dad and from my dad's sisters because Every summer when my friends would go down to the Jersey Shore, my parents would send us to live in a war. We'd go back to Palestine every summer. And there was no TV. 
and I would sit with my aunts and we would gossip about all the people in the village. And it was hysterical because people are mean spirited and they're really funny. And so I learned to be a storyteller for my aunts. I learned comedy from my dad. My dad was hysterical and he loved all the classics. So we watched the honeymooners. We watched, I love Lucy. We watched all of those great like sitcom comedies. Sorry. Ah, my cat is like tearing me up. It's bad. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> She's a newborn and she doesn't know how to behave yet. And I'm wearing a very flouncy dress and she's attacking me. Anyway, ah. sorry, I'm back. Slight mild distractions. So that yeah. that impact of your parents. So your father sort of had a defining, well, you clearly inherited his sense of humor, sense of humor. and character, that, that side of your character. In terms of your mother's impact, I've heard you talk about the importance of the role that she played. And you've used this term, you have this can-can attitude. Was that both of them or was it mainly your mother no, that instilled that? No, that was totally my dad. <laughs> yeah? Okay, so no, we're, can, listen, we can't leave your mom yeah, out of this. Can can's my dad. Can my dad's mantra was you can do it. Yes, you can can. Because nah. I was a little dancer and I grew up, you know, close to Broadway and seeing the Rockettes. And so his mantra was you can do it. Yes, you can can. I say my dad was a teddy bear and my mom was a tyrant. My mother is a classic immigrant tiger mother. No mercy. You don't get a 99 on the test. You get a hundred. You don't like college is not an option. Failure is not an option. She has absolutely no mercy. I tell a story about how when I went on 60 Minutes the first time, I was like, mom, did you see me on 60 Minutes? And she was like, yes, your hair looked terrible. And like, that's who she is. And she was right. And my hair looked better all, than All right, time. hang on a second. I, I, I get it then. I yeah. get why this, this, your two sisters are high achievers. But when you said at age three, five. I have three sisters. Oh, sorry. Three, sorry, sorry. one of them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Your three sisters, high achievers. But when you said at age five, I want to be on General Hospital, that surely she must have had words in your ear at that point going, no, 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 no. no. Because I wasn't telling my mother I wanted to be on General Hospital. Uh, okay. Everyone assumed I'd be a lawyer because I was really good at arguing. And I was basically going to become a lawyer, but I became a super successful, lucrative stand-up comic and never went to law school. So I, I studied theater in college and then I gave myself one year to audition in New York City before I went to law school while I was studying ah, for the LSAT. I see, and right, okay. I became like a super successful comic making like a ton of money. And to this day, I think of being like Kim Kardashian and going back and getting a law degree, but like in some non-conventional way where I just pay someone to give it to me or something. I don't know what she's doing. She's not going to school, but she's going to be a lawyer. I think the, yeah, in following you in court would certainly be a, a different experience. So maybe you should. I think that sounds like it could be a new stage. So Well, I play a lawyer on General Hospital. Yeah, exactly. So seems like you should definitely go down that route and experiment. It's my destiny. Yeah. But talk about, I've heard you also talk about being the only Muslim in a small Christian New Jersey town. Yeah. How did that, how did that, because I've had quite a lot of guests that have grown up in New Jersey and been immigrants as well. And they've had challenges of being not accepted and rejected. But you said that it, you, that didn't happen to you. But I'm intrigued as to how it affected your worldview, particularly you say you're, you define yourself first and foremost as Palestinian. Yeah, I know. I grew up with the same girls since I was in kindergarten. They're still my best friends. I went and had dinner with them the day that we were all vaccinated. I ask them all the time because I did this TED Talk in 2014. It goes viral. It's translated into like 47 languages. Suddenly, kids from all over the world start writing me. And they're telling me these horrifying stories about being bullied. They're telling me that like nobody wants to date them. They're telling me that their parents exploit and hate them. And it was such a different experience than the one that I had. So like I grew up as a disabled child that was never told I was a burden. I was not only the only Muslim kid. I, I love to say I was the only kid who Santa skipped my house every single year. Not <laughs> only was I on, the only Muslim kid, I was the only disabled kid in my class. Uh -huh. I was never bullied. I was never made fun of. I was never left out. 
the joke that I tell on stage, which is completely true, is that my best friend Tina used to take me to midnight mass on Christmas Eve and tell people she's from where Jesus is from because I was Palestinian. <laughs> and like every summer, like I said, we would go to the West Bank, they would go to the Jersey Shore, and no one was ever like, why? Or like, why can't you date? I don't know why. I have asked them and my friends say that their moms would have kicked their butts <laughs> if they were mean to me. And so I guess I grew up in a town that was extremely inclusive at a time that it wasn't required to be. But I also grew up Muslim in America pre 9-11. And being Muslim in America before 9-11 was very different than being Muslim in America post 9-11. And much, much, much different than being Muslim in Donald Trump's America. I can imagine. Which is the worst it's ever been. By far the worst it's ever been. Where in Palestine do your family come from? My family's from a small village outside of Ramallah called Deir Dibwan. It's about seven miles away from Ramallah. Mm -hmm. okay. 26 miles from Jerusalem. Okay. So, yeah, the, when you said, when your friend Tina said that she comes from where Jesus was born, pretty, pretty close. Yeah, I mean, I could walk to Bethlehem if there weren't a billion checkpoints. Yeah, well... <laughs> Let's uh, talk about that in a minute. Before we do, was there any sort of defining moment and memory from your childhood that relates to who you are? I heard you talk about the Dead Sea experience when you were... Yeah, no, the, the defining moment is... A, I, I have a memoir, it's called Find Another Dream. And the title of the book comes from the defining moment. Mm -hmm. So I grew up... I'm born and raised in Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey... I'm literally walking distance from Broadway. I live right over the George Washington Bridge. It's like two miles from my house to like Midtown Manhattan. There's a ferry that goes there and everything. So in addition to dreaming of being on General Hospital, I also dreamt of being on Broadway. And I was 12 years old and my small town dance school, Terry School of Dance, took a class trip to Manhattan and there was a dance educator of America convention at the Waldorf Astoria. And they had these Broadway divas and they came in and they taught us a dance routine and they told us all about like auditioning and how to become Broadway stars when 12 years old. So we were in these little dance circles and we each had our own diva and the diva asked everybody, what's your dream? And the girls were like, I want to be a unicorn. I want to be a princess. And the diva was like, amazing, <laughs> like applauding them. She gets to me. I say, I want to tap dance and Savion Glover's bring in the noise, bring in the funk. And they looked at me and they said, girl, you're a cripple. Find another dream. Oh, seriously? They said that? Yeah. Yeah. And like literally the girl before me was like, I want to be a unicorn. And she was like, you go, girl. And then she told me I was a cripple and to find another dream at the age of 12. And that was the moment. That must that be like a punch in, in the face to you. That I was like, I'm going to tap dance on Broadway someday and I'm going to find you and be like, I'm going to tap dance on your grave. And then in 2010, I tapped dance on Broadway and I told that story on stage. And uh, it was incredible. I hope that like person has and heard I that think story. She was such an integral part mm -hmm. because she was the first person to say I was disabled out loud to my face, except wow. for my neurologist. I had a neurologist since I was born until I was 18 years old. His name was Dr. Aaron and he was fabulous. And I always knew that like twice a year I would go to Dr. Aaron and we would talk about cerebral palsy. Like that's what would happen. But like my teachers didn't say I was disabled for some insane reason. My parents never had a disabled tag on their car. Like they just didn't do it. I don't know why. My friends never said that I was disabled. And so the Broadway diva screaming you're a cripple in my face was like the first time an outside source ever judged me for my disability. And at 12 years old, my immediate reaction was basically like, fuck you, clown, I'm going to make it. <laughs> and I did. And it was part of that weird adrenaline drive that helped me get to where I am. So that just made you more resolute in your ambition. Yeah, it made me so much more determined. But I was also like, 
the nerve. Like I, it made really 12 year old me want to like, I swear to God, it made me want to protect other people because she was mean to me and I was completely alone because I wasn't with my friends. I was at a dance convention. They put you in all different groups. They like split you up from people. And like, there was no one to defend me. There was nothing that I could do. And it made me be like, I'm never going to let anyone else douse anyone's dreams at 12. <laughs> I mean, that that sort of reaction or that, that, that type of comment could destroy a lot of 12-year-olds and have yeah. a really damaging sort of psychological effect, long-lasting psychological effect. Where do you think your strength of character and, let's say, thick skin comes from? My dad, and I'm so sorry for all the people who are not born with this amazing, you know, parental backbone. My dad was my biggest cheerleader, right? So he had, like, he had already cheered for me. He had already explained to me that I wasn't going to accomplish everything that I wanted to, that I just had to try. If I didn't do it, I didn't do it. If I did, I always got applause. And my mother was so, so merciless that I knew I was good. I knew that she wouldn't say I was good if I wasn't good because she was always really down to tell me when I wasn't. So like I knew that I was good. I knew that I could do it. I mm. knew that they weren't lying to me. I knew that I was like charming and a crowd pleaser and that I was talented. <laughs> and and she just couldn't bring me down because like I said, my mother had already given me like skin that was leather. And my father was like, you can do it. Yes, you can, can. Don't listen to the mean diva. And also, I swear to God, something in 12-year-old me was like, but that chick said she was going to be a unicorn. And you were like, that's totally possible. So how is my dream <laughs> not possible suddenly? All right. So that set you on your path. What was school like for the young Mason? When you were already thinking, I'm going to be was, a dancer. I'm going to... Yeah. It must be... It must I was be like hard. ridiculously, ridiculously smart. I didn't have to study at all. I could read books in one day. I did my homework. I did my friend's homeworks. I was student council president, editor of my yearbook. Wow. So, yeah. I had a date to the prom, you know, and I had to hide my date to the prom because I had conservative Muslim parents. So <laughs> I took my prom picture alone. <laughs> I was a nerd. I was a nerd. I got a huge, huge scholarship to go to college. I had no student debt like other people. I graduated with like money in my pocket. I got a BA in theater. I'm a Princeton fellow. I teach at Princeton because, you know, I have 900 jobs. So I'm a comedian. I'm an actress on General Hospital. I'm a public speaker. I'm a producer. I'm a writer. I'm a host. And I'm a fellow at Princeton and I teach stand-up comedy. And I'm the producer of the New York Arab American Comedy Festival with Dino Badala. And we are the largest ethnic comedy festival in the history of America. And I read that, that it was the Gotham Comedy Club that gave you your break for that. Yep. One of my Gotham. favorite comedy clubs. Gotham in, is our home, yeah, home great. club. Chris Mazzilli is amazing. 14th but Richie, Street. God rest his soul at the comic strip, has also been super kind to us. And when's that going to kick off again? So we're doing a show June 13th at the comic strip. Oh, yeah. And then the oh. New York Arab American Comedy Festival returns for its 18th year, 18th year, because we started it to combat the negative images of Arabs and Muslims post 9-11. So its 18th year kicks off at Gotham Comedy Club, November 14th to the 16th, 2021. Wow. Live. We had to do it via Zoom last year. It was horrible. But you, the one on June 13th is at the comic strip. It's at the comic strip. Yeah, we've yeah. got to get tickets for that then. Right, okay. So, I mean, obviously we're talking right now, I'm going to timestamp this, in the middle of what we're witnessing is just some of the most atrocious attacks on Gaza by Israel at the moment. And, you know, you've talked about, you created this comedy festival as a reaction to post 9-11. I'd love your perspective in terms of how do we find a way forward here? What's the, is there a solution? I mean, I was, someone yes. Yes, yes, yes. And the solution is like, it's just so simple. It's so easy, but it just takes like a couple of good, strong people. So first of all, Sarah, who introduced us, 
went to Palestine with me because um, in my 20s, I, I went to Palestine and did charity work with disabled and wounded refugee children. And our goal was to mainstream them into the school system. So Sarah went to Palestine with me. So just really quickly, both my parents are Palestinian. I'm born and raised in Jersey. I'm a super, super duper American. Like I'm really American. I, you know, was a delegate for Barack Obama. I was a disability surrogate for, for Joe Biden. I'm extremely active in American politics, but I identify as Palestinian. And the reason I don't live in Palestine is because I'm not allowed to live in Palestine because every single Palestinian life, no matter where you live on the globe, is controlled by Israel. So my father is buried in Palestine. And I'm an American citizen, and we're always saying that Israel is our number one ally, our special friend. And if I fly to Tel Aviv, they have the right to reject me entry simply because I'm Palestinian. So that's just like number one. But I want to break down Palestine-Israel in the most simple, simple format I can for anyone who's listening to this. And I don't believe that people listen to podcasts, but if someone is, this is how it goes. If you are born in the Bethlehem area and you are Jewish, you have full rights. You can travel wherever you want. You can own land. You get socialized health care. You have full rights. If you are a Muslim born right next door to that Jewish person, no rights. Suddenly, you are completely stripped of rights. You do not have freedom of movement. You are constantly under siege from people trying to literally take your land, take your house, burn your trees. You get shot at. You get thrown in jail arbitrarily. You have to cross checkpoints to visit other Palestinians. But wait, there's more. If you're a Christian... Born in that same Bethlehem neighborhood, guess what? You have no rights either. That's right. Christians actually have no rights in the same territory. So the solution is extremely simple. These people already coexist. And when you talk about like, oh, there's all this bombing and there's this fighting and hundreds of people are dying, they don't coexist. No, they actually do coexist. The entire rest of the year, they drive on the same roads and get this, 100,000 Palestinians go into what's considered like Israel's official borders every single day to work in their supermarkets, clean their houses, babysit their kids, very much like you know, undocumented workers come into the United States to do the jobs that we don't want to do. Palestinians are in there doing the jobs that Israelis want to, don't want to do. But Palestinians also live in all of the Israeli cities, in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, in Yaffa, and they are second-class citizens. It's very much like Jim Crow in America. They can't get the same jobs. They don't get the same benefits. When tensions flare up with Palestinians, their houses are targeted and vandalized and burned down. So Palestinians are just terrorized on a daily basis. Now, I condemn the bombing, attacking, or killing of civilians by anyone at any time. I hate Hamas. I hate theocracies, whether it's Saudi Arabia, the Israeli government, or the right-wing evangelicals in America. I do not want religion involved in government. But if you're going to gas women and children praying at the third most holy site in Islam in Jerusalem on a high holy day in Ramadan, I don't think you should be surprised if the Looney Tunes radical extremist Muslims decide to bomb you. So like maybe it's not a good idea to attack people's holy places unprovoked. And what hurts my heart is that the Palestinians' right to life, the simple right to life, is not internationally recognized. We recognize that Israel has a right to self-defense. And when I say these people already live together, if you give them equal rights, 
the violence doesn't disappear. Look at, you know, BLM and look at what's happening in America. It doesn't happen overnight. But if these people are given equal rights, if they're given the ability to feed their children, to get an education, to not live terrorized with PTSD because they're getting their shit blown to bits every night, you're actually going to have the first democracy in the Middle East. But right now we call Israel a democracy. It's an apartheid nation. Do you think there are factions in Israel that would move in that direction of coexistence and acceptance? I think that there's large factions in Israel that would move towards that because I see with this latest round of violence, the solidarity that many Israelis have shown their neighbors. But I also think it's a highly militarized society where that from the day they're born, they know they're going to go into the army. And if you don't conscientiously eject and spend that year in jail, I can't really trust you because you went out and hunted people because they were the wrong faith. You controlled their every movement because they were the wrong faith. Nothing separates these people other than the religion they were born. Nothing. Yeah, and I it- always say on Twitter... Judaism is not to blame for Israel. Israel is a supremacist government, not because of Judaism. These are two separate issues. Judaism is not at fault here. It's the supremacist government that refuses to give people who are not Jewish equal rights. That's the problem. It's interesting. When I left school, one of my best friends at school was a Palestinian um, who called Salim Dejani. And when I finished school, went to live, well, stay from, with him for a month <laughs> during Ramadan. <laughs> I could have picked a better time. In Jerusalem? No, no. It was, it, it, his family left in the 67, uh, 67 war and went to Amman. So I went to Amman and we traveled around Jordan for a month. And I got to sort of obviously meet all his friends and get a sense of the culture. And, and the one thing that has always surprised me is just the way that the rest of the Arab nations haven't embraced Palestinians. And I think he's, he often, Salim used to say that their Palestinians are the most enterprising and entrepreneurial of most Arabs, and therefore they're, they're feared and not accepted because of... Well, I, I, I think it's actually three things. I think, one, the way that we were artificially divided into countries that then were handed to the most mafioso, grotesque families in the region caused division among the Arabs to begin with. And I think that once that division happened, we Arabs have very little in common. And there's very little unity in the Arab world because we have very little in common. Palestinians don't have anything in common with Saudis except the Arab language. That's it. That's all. Yeah. And I think the Arab world resents the Palestinians because they feel like their blood has been shed because of us. Mm. Yeah, it's also really sad that there's not enough education and understanding of the complexities of the Middle East and the makeup. And when I, when I was at school, boarding school, my parents lived in Iran. And just the, 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 even the ignorance that exists today here in the US and in Britain as well yeah. as to what Iran is like as a nation and the people, you know, unbelievably educated and open-minded. And also what the Middle East and Iran were like in the 50s. Like the pictures of my mom in Jerusalem wearing miniskirts and sleeveless, <laughs> you know, dresses. And same thing in Iran being mm-hmm. like very Euro chic. And then all of a sudden, Paris of the Middle East. like, what can we do to fuck up the entire region? I know. It's tragic. Well, look. I mean, because that's, the, that's really the big thing. It's like, look at the map. Look at where in the world is burning and then trace it back to what America did. <laughs> because it's either Britain or America, nine out of ten times. France likes to dabble in a genocide or two, but they're not as passionate. Well, if it, the, one th- the one thing we say, I'm spending a, lot, spending a lot of time at the moment looking at the future of electric vehicles. And if you look at the Middle East, and let's face it, it's a lot of it's to do with oil and control and as electric vehicles and the battery uh, technology the the ingredients are lithium and the focus of lithium the main area in the world is a triangle in south america so i think in the next 30 years we're going to start to see the middle east change 
and we're going to start to see the real trouble spot being c- Central and South America as everyone battles for... Well, lit- Central and South America are already on fire. Yeah, well, it's going to really get worse. Are. It's going to get a lot worse. Anyway, let's they talk. Let's worse. let's talk a bit about discrimination. You've mentioned it, and obviously that we've been living through a period of uh, a lot of racial, gender, religious dis- discrimination, and it's part and rightfully it's part of the current cultural and and uh, societal narrative, and that we have to address it. But you've experienced it on a completely different level. And I, I just think you've mentioned at the start that very little has been said and done about the fact that only uh, 2% of people that appear on television and programs and even probably ads are disabled. And may, most of them are played by... But 50%, but 50% of all people killed by American law enforcement are also disabled. So that one, yeah, so that one we win. 50%. Five zero, predominantly black and brown, but 50% of all people killed by American law enforcement are disabled. That would be for several reasons. Number one, failure to comply. So if I get pulled over, I'm spastic, right? I shake all the time from my cerebral palsy. If I get pulled over, they tell me to put my hands where they can see them. I can't. If I'm deaf, I don't turn around. If I'm autistic and you're screaming in my face, the chance that I'm going to comply instead of have a meltdown is pretty much zero. But more importantly, mental health, TBIs, learning disabilities, all of these things contribute to our failure to comply, which can also cause our deaths. And finally, police being called to mental health crises often end in the death of the person they were supposed to come and save from being, say, suicidal or attempting self-harm. Which is I'm a why... feel-good romp. Everyone can tell I'm a comedian, right? Yeah, but it's... <laughs> No, but it is. I mean, you've talked about you've talked about the sort of the need for change in your TED talk, and clearly you've, you're uh, an, an, an activist on sort of many levels. Is this something you think the, the the tide will turn? I mean, we've seen so much discussion and and in the political narrative at the moment about the need for some form of police reform. Are you seeing changes? I'm not because I'm still seeing mental health scapegoated for violence, even though people with mental health issues are much more likely to face violence than be perpetrators of it. I'm still seeing it like right now when they talk about the people who did the insurrection on the Capitol, they're like, clearly they're not mentally well. So I'm still seeing mental health conflated with violence. I'm still seeing a very direct disability prison pipeline. I'm not, let's see what I can say that's positive is I think we're having much more conversation about mental health and destigmatizing it. I think people are starting to understand that mental health is a physical disability because our brain is an organ, therefore mm-hmm. it's a physical um, yeah. issue. But I don't see schools doing their job to protect students with mental health disabilities. I don't see, like I said, an end to the violence that they are being subjected to not only from law enforcement, but their own family members. Women with disabilities are three times more likely to be sexually assaulted. I'm not seeing society that's putting disabled rights first because like when the COVID pandemic hit, no one cared to save our lives. When they used to say, don't worry, it only kills elderly people in high risk. What they meant was disabled. But they knew it would sound bad to be like, don't worry, it only kills disabled people. And when we talk about like Governor Cuomo and Governor DeSantis putting people in the nursing homes at risk, you think of grandma and grandpa. And what you don't think of is the fact that that nursing homes often house disabled people from the age 18 and up who no one else is going to take care of. Well, so particularly the, the rising incidence of autism. Yeah. The disability community died in huge numbers. And then when the vaccine was rolled out, we weren't put on the priority list. In the United States of America, I spend $500 a month on health insurance that doesn't cover anything. I mean, you know? hey, so, yeah, let's not get into the, the American health uh, healthcare system or lack of it. But I think that I think that Joe Biden will work on this issue. 
I just think that the four years under Trump took the disability so far back, the disability community so far back. I mean, that, like, that speech that he did. Roll back protections. Yeah, do you remember that speech when he was mimicking someone? I mean, it's, it's well, unbelievable. Well, we, we always say, like, the mimicking was, like, the least of the problems because he put in, like, Neil Gorsuch, who has, like, judged against autistic people often. Betsy DeVos stripped disabled students of 72 protections. This woman never, ever went to her job. She was, like, playing on her yacht, but she found time to strip disabled people of protections. They're nefarious. Well, thankfully it's in the past and hopefully, as you thankfully. say, Biden will actually start to rest. I mean, and... he is a disabled president. He has a stutter. Yeah. He was very mm-hmm. vocal about that. He's a champion for, you know, cancer research. And he has put in his new rescue plan $400 million for disability and home-based health care services. But he's also greenlit the massacre of children in Gaza. So I have a complicated relationship with Joe. Thankfully, he's married, and it's not like that between us. Well, <laughs> well let's talk about, about comedy. You, All right. You, I've heard you talk about your love of Richard Pryor. I, One of my, Richard I remember Pryor. watching Richard Pryor live on Sunset Strip when it came to a movie theater in, in Dundee, where I was living when I was a kid, and just thinking, who is this guy? unbelievable because i grew up in the uk with comedians like billy Connolly and the likes who are brilliant comedians but richard and Pryor, eddie izzard eddie izzard as well yeah i used to go see eddie izzard all the time at the edinburgh festival one of the great comedians but richard Pryor, what unbelievable sort of character he he was in he, there was some fire incident that he was was there was he caught he in was, a fire he was heating he was heating drugs on a spoon and his face caught fire and they had to take skin off of his butt and put it on his face. And in his stand-up comedy routine, he talks about the whole thing. And as a young disabled chick who was also a person of color, watching Richard Pryor so shamelessly talk about the face, the skin on his face <laughs> being the skin from his ass because he set himself on fire doing drugs made me be like, yeah, yeah. Because I right, because you're just living that life. You're like, this is who I am. The the comedians and drugs. I mean, there's a, obviously there's a, <laughs> a, a strong a strong sort of a relationship, a happy relationship in many cases, and tragic ones in others. Farley, man. Yeah, Chris Farley. Chris Farley is the one I'll never get over. Yeah, the when loss- you talk about tragic drug overdoses. But if all the great comedians, I mean, who are the ones? Is it Pryor or or what about even sort of, um, um, Ed, Eddie Robin Murphy? Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams. So I hate this. Honestly, my top three are white men and it breaks my heart. Like, I really don't want them to be. And then I'll talk about women. But number one is Robin Williams. I've never seen a more magical comedian live in my life. Oh, you saw him live. Mesmerizing. Where did you start? In New York. New York City. Yeah. I I think it was Broadway, actually. He had like 20 bottles of water on the table and he just drank water the entire show. But his, not only was he mesmerizing, there was so much heart. He was so honest. So he'd be telling these wacky jokes and you could always find the heart in it. To George Carlin, I'm very political, and you can play any George Carlin piece on any subject at any time, and it's always evergreen. It's always evergreen. And finally, my comedian heart and soul is Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg, gone too soon to heroin. He did all one-liners. All of his, you have to watch Mitch Hedberg. He's one of the greatest, well, he is the greatest comedian to ever live. And he did all one-liners. Now, I equally love Carol Burnett, who you wouldn't call a stand-up, but her monologues were stand-up comedy. I think Tiffany Haddish is the greatest comic performing live right now at this moment. And I love, love, love me some Monique. I think Monique is brilliant. I would have thought someone like Joan Rivers would have appealed as well, or 
You should look up what she thinks about Palestinians. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. That aside, yeah. yeah. Sometimes, sometimes when people are committed to the genocide of my people, I don't find them amusing. Yeah. What was the name of that the third woman you mentioned? I'll just take a bit of show notes. Monique. 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 Don't know. Okay. Yeah, Monique. M-O-N-I-Q-U-E. She's a black comic very og from like the time of queen latifah first coming out as a rapper uh, right she's incredible okay. she's tough okay i love aquafina too i really really love aquafina my dream in life is to do a buddy road trip comedy with aquafina that sounds like another plan wouldn't that be fun i love her yeah I love comics who have heart. Like all those people I listed have heart, but then they have like something about them that's unique. They're not talking about losing socks in the dryer or fucking chicks. It's very original. Mm. And what about the um, the other guy that died from drug overdose? The Jim Belushi. Belushi, yeah. Yeah. Belushi was amazing. But Belushi was more SNL. He's like a Gilda Radner or like yeah. a Gene Wilder. Or Martin Short. Martin Short is so amazing too. And what and what about he was on SNL a couple of weeks ago? Dave Chappelle. Dave Chris Chappelle, Rock, yeah. Eddie Dave Murphy. Chappelle. I mean, isn't Dave I love Chappelle? Them all. I think Dave Chappelle's eight four eight was one of the greatest stand up routines ever made. Yeah, that was incredible. It was epic. It was epic in the time of the pandemic. It was an epic, like, testament of what was happening with George Floyd, but it was also just, like, so gut-wrenchingly funny. So as a, a Muslim woman, you've been doing stand-up in uh, New York a year after 9-11. How do, you t- how do you prepare and deal with the heckles? Yeah, so it wasn't a year after 9-11. I started doing stand-up comedy a year before 9-11. I got back on stage on September 21st, which was 14 days, no, 10 days after 9-11. I got back on stage. I did my routine like I always did my routine. Nobody dared to come near me. And that was the strategy. The strategy was I wasn't going to be apologetic. I wasn't going to be like, hey, I'm a Muslim on stage. I opened the way that I always did back in the day, which was at the time. I've been, I got married between now and then. but And I got divorced, so it's all fine. But my intro used to be I'm a Palestinian Muslim virgin with cerebral palsy from New Jersey. If you don't feel better about yourself, maybe you fucking should. And it stayed the same after 9-11. And then I just went on to tell the jokes I was telling, you know, my Jesus jokes and my dating. I was literally dating a river dancer. So I would talk about river dance a lot, which was hilarious. River dance as, and, um, as in I, the Irish dancing, tap, tap dancing. Yeah. Yeah. I literally... I literally for 18 months dated one of the stars of Riverdance on Broadway. Not Michael. Uh, the, uh, no, 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 no. His name was Zef Casey. I write about him in my book. He was constantly flitting around. It made me very spazzy. But <laughs> it, I, it, I, you know, I was just doing comedy about my life. And like, I, I, people did not start bullying me about being a Muslim until Donald Trump became president. And that's when the hecklers... You're kidding. Went from... No, I'm dead serious. First of all, first of all, in my entire life, I never got a death threat until Donald Trump became president. And then it became like a thing. Second of all, my hecklers went from being drunk and wanting to fuck me to being drunk and wanting to fucking kill me. So that was quite a shift. And then, like, suddenly, like, being Muslim was an affront to them. And I was trying to be, like, aggressive instead of, like, oh, hey, that's a Muslim chick. I've never seen a Muslim chick's hair. And so, like, it shifted from from people, like I said, just being drunk and, like, wanting attention to being, like, I think I should probably let my agents report this one to the FBI. What do you think Trump unleashed? And now it's chilled out. It's really chilled out. Like that first six weeks after the insurrection, it was still really scary and dodgy. And now it's like they all disappeared, like they took a Xanax or something. But what do you think he unleashed? What was it? What was turned on in people or what was released? That, and what did he do to create? Such they a- had been taught that it was unacceptable and you would be shunned from society if you were a racist. It was not cool to be a racist. So like Paula Dean said racist shit. She lost her cookbook. She lost her mm. show. 
and she was never allowed to eat butter in public again. But then Donald Trump came out and he was like, racist shit. And he became president. And he was like, women are bitches and women swoon. And he was like, I'm going to steal shit in plain sight. And people were like, fuck yeah, I would steal shit too. And he tapped in to their basest instincts, their darkest corners and made it okay. And made people like them the hero and made the fact that they were not allowed to be assholes all these years because of us are fucking liberals made them like hate us. We were the people that made them not be their true, authentic, hateful, nasty selves. And now they were gonna do it all just like their hero. Hmm. And I don't think they're stupid. And I don't think that they believe that he won. I think they believe that black votes shouldn't count. That's what I think they believe. But it and isn't I have no sympathy for these fuckers. But it's but it's encouraging that it's you've you've witnessed a, a change even in the, after the last, the six weeks that things are quietening down. Yeah, but- it was it was absurd. Like I looked up at some point in March and I was like, we were living in a hellscape, and like now it's back to you know whatever semblance of normal it is in a country where you live on stolen land. And, and your tax dollars are used to bomb children who are Palestinian living in Gaza. But once you put that stuff aside, it's it's gotten like everything's gotten better. And it just shows you that like leadership counts. And I always say Joe Biden doesn't care about the rest of the world. He is the actual America first president. He's the guy who's literally like, I'm going to fix this place. I spent 48 years thinking of how I'm going to fix it. And now I'm going to fix it. So like as disappointed as I am with him in foreign policy, I kind of know that Merrick Garland is stepping on the throats of some of these people who have been terrifying us quietly. Do you think do you think the Southern District will will get Trump and no, I think they're going to take Eric and I want them to take Ivanka. But they will never, ever jail Trump. They can't jail Trump. They're never going to jail Trump. He's Teflon. He's the head of a mafia family. You never get the dirt on the head. They make sure that you don't. I want them to take Ivanka. There's no one in the world I would rather see rot in jail than Ghislaine Maxwell. After her, Ivanka. I want Ivanka. But they won't. Because we're always like, we never get satisfaction or justice with the Trumps, they're going to take Eric, who no one even effing cares about. They'll throw him in jail for like four years. He'll get stabbed with a mop and die after two. And no one will even remember him when Barron has his big front page People magazine wedding. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. So I hope for bigger things than that. But yeah, time, time, so time you're will hoping tell. that it's the big guy that gets the mop? Yeah, (laughs) you know Jeffrey Dahmer got beaten to death with a mop. That's right. Okay. Example. Uh, So, um, given that things are sort of moving in the right direction, and you're sort of re-kicking off the Arab American Comedy Festival, are you you seeing sort of a a lot of talent out there, and you're giving them a stage and a and a voice? How do you find the talent? They come to me. I'm like, you know. I'm the queen of the Crips, which are all the disabled people. So I have like a cadre of disabled people. If anyone anywhere is like, I need a disabled cameraman. I'm like, I got one. A disabled ophthalmologist. I have one. And it's the same thing with the Arabs. Like when my comedy festival began the first year, we had Omar Mithwali, who's now starring on Big Sky on ABC. We had Waleed Izwaiter who was like in that whole like Baghdad miniseries and he was in like a movie with George Clooney. The chick Tala Shrafi, who's on Supergirl, started at the New York American Comedy Festival. So like Arab talent out there knows if they want to be seen by Hollywood, Rami Youssef. Rami Youssef on Rami came to us when he was like 18 years old, just starting college and audition and ran the comedy festival with us for like seven years. And so Arab talent know if they want to be seen by Hollywood, they have to come through us. We're the, we're the gatekeepers. And what are the audiences like? Is it a good, diverse mix of people? The audiences are really diverse, but it's so funny. It's a late show, early show thing. So when we have a show at seven o'clock, it's like 65% white, 35% Arab. 
And when we have a show at midnight, it's like all Arab. Men and women? Like they, oh yeah, of course. I mean, it's my show. (laughs) If it was just all men, I'd feel fucking filthy and not do it. (laughs) They offered me $25,000 to go to Saudi Arabia. I told them to go suck it. Yeah, quite right. But have you ever performed in Palestine? Yeah. I saw you performing in Palestine in 2002. Rumor has it I'm the first person to ever perform stand-up in Beirut, Amman, and and, uh, Palestine. But I always say I never say I'm first. Maybe there was someone in the 50s and no one knew about him. But yeah, I don't yeah, think stand up was a big thing in the 50s. So, so you probably you are performing stand up in Palestine for 20 years. I perform in English and Arabic. I have a bunch of my footage online. I performed in Jerusalem, Nazareth, Haifa, Bethlehem, Janine, Hebron, Ramallah. I had to perform in all different places because there's checkpoints and people can't come see you in one place. So you have to go to them. So, like, I do a tour of Palestine, even though it's the size of Jersey. The checkpoints must get to know you as well. <laughs> they go, oh, here she comes. Yeah, I hate, I hate, I hate them, and they hate me. Let's be clear. <laughs> They're always like, say thank you, and I'm like, now. <laughs> so you, I've heard you talk. I about... have to go. This is your last question. I have to go. Oh, okay. I right. Can I give do the quick fire questions then? Yes, I love quick fire. Principles. What they? What principles do you stand by? First, do no harm. Um, um, there's not limited power. So, like, if I succeed, you can still succeed. It doesn't have to be one or another. And never, ever, ever get married. Marriage is a racket that should be avoided at all costs. Okay. What's one problem worth solving? Violence against women. Okay. Four people you'd have for from history around for a dinner party to help you solve or create a better future. Who would they be? Dolly Parton. <laughs> okay. Who else? Wow, I'm not too tied to historical figures. Frida Kahlo. Yep. Balfour, because I'd poison him. <laughs> and, I, and, El, and Elvis, just for shits and giggles. Okay, sounds like a good one. I don't think I did. I don't think I played that game right, but that's who I would pick. Your advice to someone that's about to graduate study that has a dream, a goal, grand ambition, but it's been told it's impossible. Graduate college or graduate high school? It could be either. It's anyone with a big ambition that's been told, Well, if it's someone who's graduating high school, go and get yourself a trade. Learn how to do electricity or plumbing or how to fix a car so that you can always make money. Fuck dreams. Your dreams are worthless if you don't have cash. Okay, all right. What's your go-to? <laughs> what's your what's your go-to karaoke song? My go-to karaoke song. Uh huh. My God, it's last night a DJ saved my life, but the Mariah Carey version. Okay, all right. Put that on the list. Best series that people might have missed during lockdown that you think they should watch. I don't know if they missed it. The best series was Schitt's Creek, but because everyone saw Schitt's Creek, my favorite series was WandaVision. Everyone saw WandaVision. So the one that people may not have seen but should is called Shrill. It's A.D. Bryant from Saturday Night Live, three seasons, and she's excellent. But WandaVision may be the best show since MASH. Okay, two questions left. What book do you want us to offer listeners that come up with the best comments on Instagram? Find Another Dream, my Audible bestseller. There you go. Okay. And final question, who should we interview next? I feel like that's a tough question because I would never want to subject any of my friends to a podcast. (laughs) Right. Okay. I think that you should, you should interview Alice Wong, but I don't know if you can get her. Alice Wong. She's the editor of Disvisibility Anthology. She's one of the most badass disability advocates I've ever met, but she's also like heavily into Asian American history in America and advocacy. And she's just fierce. She's really cool. I'm putting together, I I have a new docu-series that I'm working on and an element of it is a talk show. And she's one of the hosts on the talk show. I call it The View After a Really Bad Accent because we're all disabled. Ah, all right. Well, it sounds great. So, well, if you can connect me, I'll try and get her to come on the show. And I will I'll introduce you, but her email is going to say, I have no time for you. But then you might be lucky and she'll get back to you. I don't know. No worries. But that's, that's, the, but that's the whole thing of serendipity. We just wait and see. Yeah.
If you don't get Alice Wong, you should try for Aquafina and tell her I want to do a road trip movie with her. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> I don't know her. That's the plan. That's the plan. All right. Well, uh, Mason, thank you very much for your energy. Your your you're uh, just such a, a massive bundle of positive energy and enthusiasm and yeah I've really enjoyed it and I really look forward because I'd I'd never encountered you before I and then I've just really enjoyed watching oh, all your cool. material well so now I'm you have be, to jump down the rabbit hole at maysoon.com it's really fun it is I'm halfway down that rabbit hole now we'll continue awesome brilliant okay well thank all you very right. much ciao bye Mike thank you so much thank you leave leave okay That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.